The gospel story we're going to be reading from today is from Mark, starting in chapter 16, verse 1. I invite you to listen now to God's word to us all today. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, and also Salome, bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. They had been saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance to the tomb? When they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had already been rolled back. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe, sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. But he looked at them and said to them, do not be alarmed. You are looking for Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has been raised. He is not here. Look, there is the place they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. So they went out and fled from the tomb, for terror and amazement had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Lord, we ask this morning that you would meet us where we are, as we are. Meet us in this place and speak your goodwill and good news to us all. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As many of you know, my wife is from Wales in Great Britain, which means that for the last 18 years of my life and our married life together, the BBC has become one of the primary news sources that we look at in our family. This week, Beth sent me an article that was on the BBC. It was a survey that they had, were reporting on that had been conducted. And the survey question was very simple. It asked people, do you actually believe that the resurrection happened? Like, do you literally word for word, believe that a man was dead, nailed to the cross by Romans, put into a tomb and buried, and three days later, walked out of the tomb, resurrected, and that that person is the Messiah, the Savior of the entire world. Do you actually believe that? And of People who said that they were Christians, over a quarter of them said, no, 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 people don't believe that. People don't believe that anymore. Those questions they asked of those who were not Christian, over 90%, which is not surprising, said, no, don't believe anything like that. We're modern, we're enlightened, we have technology, we know science. We have wisdom. We know what happens when people die. They die. <laughs> and they stay that way. No. Isn't it enough to just kind of have warm, fuzzy moments today? Isn't it enough to make sure that the family's together and that we wear pastels that we wouldn't put on any other time of the year? Isn't it enough to do Easter egg hunts and go to brunch and have traditions? Isn't it enough to kind of celebrate that we're good people? And we have a general sense that 
that, you know, we can be good people and we're polite today. And isn't that enough? Isn't that good enough? Jesus, is a, he's a good teacher. He's a wise person. You know, I mean, he offered that and that's something and that's important and that's okay. But we don't actually believe this, do we? Do we? Friends, with all humility, we are here today because the answer to that question is yes. 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 And it is a central question to every part of our life. It's so central that if I found out this day that there was a tomb that they had uncovered in Jerusalem that they could prove was Jesus of Nazareth, I would leave the vocation of ministry today. We're not here to celebrate a wise teacher. We're not here to celebrate spring, new beginnings. We're not even here to celebrate pastels. <laughs> We're here today to claim that you don't have to check your intellect at the door to believe this, that it is true. And if it is true, if this actually happened, then this event is the single most important moment in human history. That 2,000 years ago, the son of a carpenter was nailed to a tree, not because he was the nicest guy in the world, not because he was the wisest teacher in the world, because people said he was Lord. And three days later, he rose from the grave and walked out of that tomb, and nothing in the world has ever been the same since. We are here today to publicly proclaim that this is reliable, trustworthy, and true. Amen. Now, you don't have to check your intellect at the door. You don't even have to check your questions at the door. We've developed this kind of idea that we have to separate our faith from our intellect. We have to sort of protect Christianity from questions of science or questions of rationality or questions of the intellect. And I want you to know that while we may have developed that in our own minds and in our own time, the gospel writers don't ask you to stop thinking when you read. Mark, the gospel writer whom we've just read about here, writes in a way that assumes when you first hear this, you're probably not going to believe it. Because even though we're enlightened and even though we have our modern science and even though we know so much today, the people 2,000 years ago were pretty smart and familiar with death as well. And they understood that when someone died on a Roman cross, they were dead and they stayed that way. And so Mark and the other gospel writers assume that when we first hear this, we're not just going to go, oh, okay, what a great story. That, our, that we're going to stop and go, oh yeah, that's not what happens. That's not what's real. And Mark writes in a way that he's saying, I want you to think about this. I want you to investigate it. I want you to see that it's real. Someone who's making up a story, and I don't know why you would make this story up in the first place, but let's just say that you wanted to. You don't write in the way that Mark is writing. For example, you don't write with the specificity with which he writes. Mark doesn't say that there was this guy that came along who taught some wise stuff. He said that he came along in the reign of Pontius Pilate. He said he came along when, when Herod was in charge of, of being the governor of, of, of Judea. It marks it in a specific time. You know, it's funny. Archaeologists recently uncovered something in Jerusalem that had the name carved in stone Pontius Pilate. And the article about it was like, oh, 
he was a real person. You're like, yeah, he was a real guy. Because Mark wrote this, and listen, Mark wrote this. We believe that of the four Gospels, Mark, the one we just read is the earliest of the four Gospels. It was written 25 to 30 years after the events of the crucifixion and resurrection. If you're making something up, you don't make up the governor of the time because people are alive who lived in that age who would have known that you were making something up. The reason Mark writes and says, this is the time. Herod was in charge. Pontius Pilate was the Roman governor of Judea. It's saying, go and understand the time. Look back. Talk to people who were alive at that time. I want you to investigate it. I want you to look at specificity of how it's written. Read in the chapter 15 that after Jesus was crucified and taken down from a cross, it says that he was um, given over, his body was given over for burial to a wealthy member of the Sanhedrin, which was a Jewish ruling council who had become a Christian, a follower of Jesus, named Joseph of Arimathea. Mark doesn't say that the body came down and somebody put it in a tomb. He says, this is the person. This is the person's name. This is where he's from. Go ask. His tomb was right there in Jerusalem. He was a very wealthy person. At the time Mark was writing this, Jerusalem had not yet been destroyed by the Romans as it would in the year 70. Jerusalem was much intact as it would have been in the time of Jesus. Joseph of Arimathea's tomb would have been public. It would have been known where it is. You could have easily just walked in and seen, is there somebody here that, that doesn't, that's not a part of the family? And if not, Joseph of Arimathea very well could have been alive. If he wasn't alive, his children would have been alive. It would have been very easy to go, hey, got a question for you. Did your dad mention anything about turning over the tomb and a guy walking back out? Three, He may have mentioned something about this. Mark's writing this going, go talk to them. Go see. I'm not asking you to believe in a fairy tale. I'm not asking you to believe in some sort of fable or, or myth or made-up story to make us feel better. I'm asking you to use your brain and go check it out. This is reliable, friends. There is more historical evidence for the resurrection of Jesus than many of the things we teach our children in school about ancient history. This is written in a way that's saying, I know you're going to doubt it, so here's how you go and check it out and investigate it. And if it's true, if it's real, if this actually happened, it changes everything about life. It changes everything about your life. It changes everything about this world in which we live. It changes everything about what we see taking place in the news and what we see taking place in our marriages and what we see taking place with our children and what we see taking place in our families and our friendships. It changes everything. Take, for example, what we see in this passage, right? I mean, when, when these three women go to the tomb, they're not expecting a miracle. They know what happens when someone dies. They're dead. The disciples who had been following Jesus for years, they're not expecting a miracle either. Where are they? They're nowhere to be found. The women are showing up because they have a religious duty that they need to perform, not expecting to see anything. They're not expecting to see God show up in any way. And yet it changes everything for them. By the way, these women aren't just some women that went to the tomb. It's Mary Magdalene. We can tell you who she is and who she knew and where she was from. People would have known her. We can tell you that it's Mary, the mother of James, who was there, who also happened to be the mother of Jesus. And we can tell you that we know where Jesus is from, so you can go and check out. Did people know them? And then a third woman named Salome, giving names of people, saying, this is real. 
and it changes them forever. These men and these women go out as people who are scared, people not expecting to see miracles, people just living out the drudgery of life, living with pain, living in responsibility, doing the checklist of what they do, which is what life is like when the resurrection isn't real. And they go from that place, and these disciples spread out around the world, claiming that they have seen the resurrected Jesus. Never has there been a moment in history where anyone could have made up an elaborate story, not gained any riches from it, not gained any attention from it, were cut off from your family from it, were hunted. We know that most of the disciples were killed and martyred for their faith in separate places, in separate years. Why do you do that? When you're Peter 20 years later and none of your friends are around you anymore and they're getting ready to nail you upside down to a cross, which is how Peter died in Rome, if you've got some elaborate hoax going on that no one understands why you do it, but you're still maintaining it 20 years later, you know what you do? You tell them. Peter died a horrific death and not one of them recanted. Not one of them took it back. It changed everything about their lives. And I'd like to suggest to us today that if we have the imagination and the faith and the understanding not to be too enlightened, not to be too proud, to consider that this is truth, literal truth, then it shouldn't change, that nothing should remain the same in our lives in Austin, Texas, 2,000 years later today. There have been many ways to describe what this would look like, but a phrase that I've heard recently of what would it mean if the resurrection was true and if we lived this way? What would it mean if we took this seriously? What difference would it make in our life is a phrase that I have grown to love. It's a phrase you might be hearing more around covenant in the days to come. And the phrase is this. It says that if this good news is true, then we should be people who live daily with hopeful expectation. Isn't that a great phrase? That every day we should wake up with hopeful expectation. That's not how the women approach the tomb in this story. That's not how the disciples are living as they're scattered and fearful. None of them are living in hopeful expectation. They're living in fear and in pain and in loss. But that the power of the resurrection is that if it's real, that you and I are called to wake up every day with a sense of hopeful expectation. Now, what does that mean? That doesn't mean that, 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 that what we're saying is every day is going to be rainbows and daffodils. That's not what we're saying. If we said that today, it's like this is Easter and life's going to be great and life's not going to have pain. It's always going to be happy and it's always going to be pastel colors spread out all over time. You know that's not true. That's a feel-good moment. The resurrection is not about learning to avoid pain. The resurrection is about the knowledge that pain shall be overcome. Those are two totally different things. It's not saying that we will avoid pain. It's saying that pain and heartache and betrayal and loss and agony will not be something that will overcome us. That love triumphs in the end. And today is the day in a broken world with so much that is hard in our lives and so much is that is hard on the news around us when we cling to that truth and to that knowledge that sends us out. That whatever we face, we can face it with hopeful expectation. And someone wrote me this week, Easter's not a romantic comedy. It's not 90 minutes of forgetting the heartache of the world and just having a feel-good moment and wearing pastels and going to brunch and then moving on with life. It's about a hope with scars. It's about a real hope. 
What would hopeful expectation look like? Well, when I think about that, when I think about what it would mean to live that way, I kind of think in images. That's how my brain works, uh, you know, of, of just kind of what does that look like? Rather than just like defining it, what is hopeful expectation? What would that mean? And the image that's come to me, and some of you might have heard me mention this once before, but it's the image that continues to come to me, is the image I have of a gentleman named Bob Henderson. Bob Henderson was a man that I met several years ago in the first church where I worked at in Atlanta, Georgia. Bob was a retired Presbyterian minister. Bob had served for decades in New Orleans and in Durham, North Carolina. And Bob was like the quintessential Southern gentleman, Southern pastor. He was about six foot three. He was tall. He had that, if you know, like people in the Southeast, that old South, kind of that that dignified, polite air. He'd use words in an accent like, you know, lemonade and, and iced tea, and it would just sort of drip from his mouth when he would say it, and you just kind of feel good. Like Bob was sort of that, that tall, dignified Southern gentleman, served for years as a church, and Bob was married to the perfect compliment to him, Betty. Betty Henderson was five foot one, to Bob six foot three. Betty was born in the South, but she had missed the email that went out that said that Southerners aren't honest, right? Southerners aren't honest. Like we talk about you behind your back, but we don't talk to your face because that would be rude. So Betty had missed that memo. Betty was somebody that if you asked her what she thought, you were going to get a very direct reply that did not leave any gray area about what she thought of anything. Bob and Betty were this amazing team, married for 58 years. We first met them in our church. They would loved my wife and I. They would have us over for dinner uh, the, day before, the days before kids when we could do stuff like that. They would uh, pray for us. They would ask about our marriage. They would uh, talk to us about their life. I mean, it was just this wonderful mentoring friendship that we developed with Bob and Betty. But they were like that with so many different people. In the last few years of her life, Betty developed several chronic illnesses, one of which affected her back and she was not really able to get out of the house very easily. She was racked with pain much of the time. She had other conditions and it wasn't surprising when one morning we were on the receiving end of a phone call to tell us that Betty Henderson had passed away in her sleep in their home the night before. Beth and I no longer worked at the church in Atlanta, but this couple had meant so much to us that we knew we were going to be there for the memorial service. Now, friends, when you go to a memorial service, you're faced with certain things that as human beings, but especially in our culture today, we like to push away. We love to push death away. We love to be young and vigorous and healthy for as long as possible. We act as though death really isn't there. We act as though loss and pain isn't there. But sometimes at a memorial service, you're not able to deflect anymore. You have to face the truth, which is that our mortality is something that is real for all of us that we will face. But at this service, this was not one of those where that was the hardest thing. Because what is, I believe, harder than that is when you are the one who has lost someone dear. When you are the one who's lost a spouse or a child or a parent, there was nothing quite as difficult as watching the beginning of the service as we all stood and the family walked from the back of the church down the center aisle for it to begin 
And there was Bob without Betty. All six foot three of him walking down the aisle after 58 years of marriage, coming to say goodbye to his life's partner. And as he walked arm in arm with his oldest daughter and his children and grandchildren trailing behind, tears were dripping off of his face as he walked down that center aisle. And he sat with his family on the front row. There wasn't hardly a dry eye in the place when you saw Bob walk down. The service began, and it was a beautiful service. It's what a memorial service should be. People told eulogies. They told stories about Betty. They talked about her fieriness. They talked about her sense of humor. They talked about her honesty and her directness. There was laughter. There were memories. There were stories. There were tears. And then the service drew to a close. The last thing to take place in the service was a soloist was singing one of Bob and Betty's favorite hymns. As the service wound down, all of us remained seated. And as the soloist was singing that morning, all of a sudden, Bob stood up on the front row. To be honest, it made all of us kind of uncomfortable. After all, this was a Presbyterian service. <laughs> we looked in the bulletin, everyone looked down, there's no little asterisk there. <laughs> telling people to, to stand. People looked around and said, did a committee study this? Did a committee study whether this is okay? Bob's gone rogue here in the middle of the service. And as he stood there and everyone watched, he turned to face the soloist with tears streaming down his cheeks and raised his arms in the air in a posture of praise and thanksgiving and began swaying back and forth to the hymn as it was sung. Because as someone said later, I hate it when people say I lost my wife. I didn't lose her. When you lose something, when you lose your car keys, you don't know where they are. I haven't lost Betty. I know exactly where she is. The resurrection is real. And after years of pain, she is whole and happy and healthy and in the presence of God knowing full joy. I didn't lose anything. She's just not here anymore. That is Easter. That is resurrection. That is hopeful expectation. This is not a day of pastels and good memories and family traditions and good brunches and being polite and everybody getting together until we can go on with the rest of our life and world turns on. If this is real, if this is trustworthy, if this was reliable, if this is true, it changes everything. Because it is the promise that is made to all of us that we can stand on this day and look at the pain and the heartache and the difficulty and the loss and the loneliness and the betrayal in our life and in our world and in our nation and with tears running down our face and pain that is real, we can raise our hands to the heavens and say that it will not have the final say in our lives. 
Easter is not about the avoidance of pain. It is the promise that we can see pain for as it is and know that it shall be overcome. This is why we celebrate this day. This is why we gather. This is why we look to the future with hope and with expectation. This is why we worship. Hallelujah. And amen. amen. Let's pray together. We ask this day, we ask this day as people who need more than good sentiments, as people who need more than nice colors and bunnies and eggs and family traditions, we sit here today, Lord, and ask that in our pain and in our loneliness and in our despair and in our cynicism, we would dare to believe that this is real. And that the truth of this day would allow us to live with hopeful expectation of what it is you will do next. We lift this prayer in the name of our resurrected brother. Jesus. Amen. Amen.